When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. All right, we're live. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Dr. Zubin Damania, AKA ZDogMD. Now what's up with this? Well, I went to the actual optometrist probably for the first time in almost 50 years, because I'll be turning 50 next year. And I can't see this far in front of my face. My arms aren't long enough now to hold the phone. And so she said, you know what? You have old man eyes and need some old man glasses. And so here is my first pair of legitimate prescription eyeglasses for reading. I can take them off and I can see distance fine, but I can't see your comments without these glasses. And your comments are here. We're gonna talk about all the things right now. Ashley Stewart, Shannon Derby, George Shepard are here. Let's do this. Okay, listen guys, there's a book. You don't have to read the whole book. You can read summaries online, but if you wanna get the book, it's not a bad idea. Dr. Ian McGilchrist is a psychiatrist, neuroscientist. He's done a few episodes with my friend, uh, David Fuller of Rebel Wisdom. And he has a really interesting perspective on left brain versus right brain. And I think this applies to medicine, society, COVID, our own sort of selves in such a profound way that it's worth talking about because I think it points the way to think about how we're going wrong, how we're basically zombies walking off the cliff and we don't even know it. And society, healthcare, all the things, arts, we're all increasingly moving towards this left brain reductionism that's going to destroy us. <laughs> and and I, I don't think that's hyperbole and, and we'll talk about why. So. First of all, let's talk about what we're even talking about here at all. And that is the left brain versus the right brain. So humans, mammals, many other actually lower animals have a divided brain. There's actually, it's divided in several ways. There's a higher brain center of like cortical stuff and lower sort of emotional limbic stuff. We've talked about that in terms of the model that Jonathan Haidt proposes of elephant and rider, the elephant being our unconscious emotional automatic brain, our kind of reptile brain, and then the higher centers of, you know, our thinking and planning and strategizing and that sort of thing. But what I'm talking about today and what McGilchrist points out is the left hemisphere of the brain and the right hemisphere of the brain. And in pop culture and sort of pop psychology, people have described this incorrectly. And that mythology has kind of stuck for years and years and years. And the mythology is this, the left brain is the sort of logical, rational, reasonable, um, kind of Spock type brain that we aspire to have. And the right brain is the kind of like new age, hippie, creative, like musical, emotional, hysterical brain. 
right? In, in many ways, it actually is a more stereotypical, like, oh, masculine left brain, feminine right brain is how the pop culture had interpreted this, you know, decades and decades ago. And it's not right. In fact, it's wrong in a fundamental way that when you do see how left brain and right brain actually do relate to each other, it will transform how you think about all the things. And this is what McGilchrist points out. It, it's, it's not like that. It, the reason his book is called The Master and His Emissary is the following. There's an old parable about this sort of king or master. And he was a very wise, benevolent, holistic master. He could kind of see, he was like a benevolent uh, autocrat, like the Singaporeans have, right? And he could see his whole kingdom because his kingdom was relatively small. And I'm probably butchering this, but who cares? We'll make it up as we go. And because his kingdom was small, he could see all the parts and how they interrelated to each other. He knew everybody's faces. He could integrate it all into a whole. He knew that he was a whole in himself, but also part of this bigger whole and could see all of that and manage it. Now, as the kingdom started to grow because of its own success of this holistic thinking, it became impossible for this holistic mind to kind of hold everything at once and still kind of do interesting things like build stuff and create technology and do things like that. So the emissary, the servant of that king was created and hired and grown. And that servant was a very logical, rational thinker and would break the holes down into the parts and actually wasn't capable of seeing the whole because that wasn't his job. His job was to break everything into parts, analyze the parts in isolation out of their context and see how they worked and then reassemble them in ways that he could understand bigger systems. And so it was a very engineering kind of mindset, a very reductionist mindset, take little part, big things and break them down into things you can understand. Now that's very powerful, but as you can imagine, it doesn't see the whole, it doesn't see the connections and it's actually blind to anything but what it can see. And what it does, what this emissary does is it makes things that were otherwise implicit, kind of contextual and implied and metaphorical, it makes them explicit. It says, no, it means this. And it turns out that emissary is the master of language because language does that. That's what it does. It takes things that are almost, in, almost inconceivable when you really look at them. Like, wow, what is a hand? It's a series of just crazy experiences that are really beyond description. And it says hand. It makes a subject and an object and it reduces this complexity to hand. It then allows us to create this dualism of subject and object, of self and other, of me separate from everything that is. And this emissary was supposed to be the servant of the master to go out Get, you know, kind of make, use these tools and kind of make things more manageable for the master. Take it back to the master and the master would go, okay, let me put that now back in the context of everything. So what does it mean? What's the purpose of it? How does it fit into the whole creatively and, and beyond creatively, just reasonably? It turns out the master is the one who has the reason. Now you see where I'm going with this. The right hemisphere is the master. The left hemisphere, in McGilchrist's estimation, evolved as a servant of the master. 
And if you look at animals, if you look at humans where there's been a stroke or a damage to one side, one hemisphere or the other, you can actually start to tease out what each hemisphere kind of does and the defects that occur when one is knocked out. Now, the left hemisphere, and we're gonna talk about that, the left hemisphere initially kind of evolved as this servant, but because it has language and because it's able to break things into parts, over time, culturally, among different humans, there is an ascendancy of left hemisphere thinking because it's the one that can talk. The right hemisphere can understand language, can understand these things, can actually, is the one that recognizes faces and understands you know, the whole, but it doesn't control language. So some really interesting experiments on split brain patients. Patients, because how does it work anatomically? You have the left hemisphere, you have the right hemisphere, and then you have these fibers, these nerve fibers that connect the left and the right hemisphere. And actually most of those fibers are inhibitory. They're actually allowing one hemisphere or another to, to say, okay, my turn, my turn. Uh, it's my turn to control things or to run the show or to do the thinking or the planning or whatever. And so over time, it's this kind of push and pull, this partnership between the master and his emissary. But as the emissary gets more powerful, he's actually putting the brakes on the master more and more. And the typical flow is the right brain sees things holistically. And that's actually interesting because in animals like birds, where their left and their right eyes are actually separated. They're not, you know, uh, um, stereo vision like this, it's off to the sides. You can actually study them because each eye is controlled by the opposite hemisphere. So the right eye actually feeds the left hemisphere and vice versa. So you can see what birds do. When they're looking for threats and danger, they turn their left eye to look. That's controlled by the right hemisphere. The right hemisphere sees the whole. When they're trying to drill down into something like find a seed on the ground out of a mess of things, they turn the other eye, the right eye, because it's controlled by the left hemisphere. And so in a bird, it's quite obvious that the two are very separate and they're doing separate things, separate functions. In humans, it's much less obvious until you do something drastic, like cut the fibers that connect the left and the right hemisphere. And this was done historically by surgeons, why? Well, it turns out the corpus callosum is the name of that bridge of fibers that connect left and right hemisphere and inhibit each other, right? Allow a degree of coordination. There are patients who have a type of epilepsy, which is electrical misactivity in the brain. And the only way they could stop these seizures was by cutting the connection between left and right hemisphere. And when they did that, Initially, people thought, oh, these guys are fine. Like, you don't even need the corpus callosum. Like, nothing's really wrong. Until they looked closer and more subtly. And this is what they found. It was almost like, it wasn't almost like, it was exactly like there were two independent, conscious entities living in each person. And by cutting the corpus callosum, they were no longer able to understand each other, inhibit each other, or hear each other. The only way they could understand what was going on is by experiencing the sense gates that they're able to. So the left hemisphere could see the right world and vice versa. And I'm simplifying a little bit. 
the left hemisphere could talk, the right hemisphere could understand. And so as a result, you could do these very clever tests where you would ask somebody a question blocking one side of the, of the visual field. And it was almost like the two were competing. One had one idea of what to do, like it would button a shirt with the left hand and then the right hand would unbutton it at, at, at the same time. They had different agendas, different personalities, different ways of seeing the world. And this is what they sort of teased out. The left brain, the left hemisphere was an asshole. So not only was it, it could only see things in an explicit way by reducing them to parts. So it saw the world as a kind of machine. It saw other humans as, a kind, as kinds of machines. It saw problems as engineering problems to solve. And it could only see the parts and rebuild a hold out of the parts. And that meant that things that were built were mechanistic and dead and lifeless and abstract. And because of this, it, only, it could only understand what was made explicit. So it only believed that it was right. And so it, you know, this whole mythology that the right brain is emotional and the left is not, that's not true. The left has lots of emotion, mostly self-righteousness, anger, and a desire to run the show because it just knows it's right. Does that feel a lot like society these days, how people behave in society these days? Well, that's a spoiler alert to the dominance and the ascendancy of the left brain in our global society. So the left brain kind of does all of this. The right brain actually is more circumspect. It's nuanced. It sees kind of the holes. It understands context, everything in its place. And the general principle historically was right brain identifies an issue, left brain goes out, drills into it, and then sends it back to right brain that puts it back in its context and makes sense. The right brain is the reasonable one, is the rational one, is the one that sees the whole and where the parts fit. And the left brain is the tool. So what happens when you make the tool the boss, when the emissary overthrows the master? Why would he do that? Well, it turns out he's able to talk. So societies, as they evolve, according to McGillchrist's theory, they get more and more left brain dominant, more and more reductionistic. The left brain is the master of bureaucracy. It's the master of, you know, building an IRS and... <laughs> building a, a series of check boxes in an electronic health record. It's the master of saying, you know what? Humans are machines. Therefore, we could just put a Fitbit on people, measure all the mechanical bits that are moving and create health, which is a, a raw material outcome that we can measure. How's that working out for us? Whereas the right brain being silent, unable to talk, is sitting there just going, oh dear, this is no good at all. Like this doesn't fit at all. And it just becomes a complete mess. So over time, as the culture moves to more left brain, look at what happened in medicine. So in medicine, you have the old health 1.0, which was the kind of art of medicine. They didn't have a ton of science and it was really relational, very right brain, very much about developing a relationship, about the rituals, the mythology, the sort of shamanistic aspects of the doctor who would come in the white coat and had the sacred element of the, of the stethoscope and so on. 
and would lay hands on you, knew you really well, knew your context, knew your family, would come and do a house call, and the relationship was not transactional. It wasn't reduced to a transaction. It was reduced to, there was no reduction. It was a relationship. The physician was integrated into the community, and this whole thing was incredibly right-brained. But now you see the limits of just right brain thinking because as that evolves, as we get better science, as we get better left brain techniques of being able to break parts and uh, holes into parts and really drilling into how, how do these individual cells work and what happens when you do a randomized control trial and you actually study the outcomes and how do these bits work? Well, that's important. And the right brain alone can't do that. So the emissary matters here. And so as that starts to advance, we start to see a shift to what they call health 2.0, what I call health 2.0. Health 2.0 is our current system, right? Actually, our current system is a mix of 1.0 and 2.0. So the current system says, hey, medicine and human bodies are kind of like a machine and healthcare is like an assembly line. And the raw materials are doctors and nurses and respiratory therapists and pharmacists and case managers and nutritionists and so on and so forth, physical therapists and occupational therapists and material science people in the hospital and so on and so forth. And we put in those raw materials and then patients are the other raw material. And out of the assembly line, which we can optimize by breaking into parts and going, this receptor does this and this cholesterol is elevated, so we do this. And this checklist says, if we do this and that, and the other thing, if their measurements are this and we measure everything, everything, and then we measure the outcomes. And then in order to get that data, you turn the human being elements that are the inputs to this machine into data entry clerks entering into an electronic health record where uh, they're looking at it like this instead of looking at the patient because the patient is just a raw material and the inputter is another raw material. And so type, 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 data, 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 click, click, click. Are you pregnant? Yes. Prostate, did you have that check? Okay, are you on lisinopril? What's your blood pressure? Okay, graph that, chart that. Okay, uh, how are we gonna get paid? Oh, let's send that to the bureaucracy so they can measure it. I call it the measurement industrial complex. And then we can go back to the assembly line. Do, 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 and out comes health. Hmm, what kind of, what side of the brain do you think that is? Yeah, that's our left brain. So medicine has gone from pure right brain contextual relational to the emissary, the left brain, health 2.0, which is blind to the benefits of, of the right brain. It, it's, it's almost like, nope, because remember the left brain is an asshole. One of the things that happens when you cut the corpus callosum and you do something and the left brain uh, doesn't quite understand it because it's in the side of the right, the left brain will just make shit up. It will, it, the term, the technical term is confabulation. It'll say, it'll say, why did you do that? And it'll be like, oh, because um, of X. And it's like, you just made that up because the real reason you did it is that you, you have no idea why you did it, right? And you're just absolutely confabulating. And this is all unconscious. People don't even know that it's happening. And that's how the left brain works. So in health 2.0, the system we're in now, we're all commodities, we're all parts. Um, it is completely concrete and not abstract. I mean, sorry, sorry. It's, com it's completely concrete and abstract and not contextual, holistic, or relational. And it uses a model of reductionism, which is the business model of inputs and outputs, like which is great for making a car. It's great for building a computer, which is an abstraction in a way. A car is an abstraction. It's a concrete series of icons. 
but humans aren't. What is a human? You, you, you cannot even figure that out because it's almost unknowable. And the right, there are parts, right? But the whole is unknowable in that sense because it's that just beyond. And the right brain intuitively knows this. The right brain thinks in story, in mythology, in metaphor, in illusions, in illusion with an A, meaning this kind of getting at truth through metaphor and story because you know that it's not reducible to a molecule. Look at depression. In Health 2.0, how do we treat it? Here's a serotonin um, reuptake inhibitor because depression is just a serotonin deficiency. It's a medication deficiency, more or less. It's a Prozac deficiency. So we reduce it to that. But what, what, what is the data now clearly showing us? That's horseshit. And maybe that's a component. But the whole is what Rachel Zoffness calls biopsychosocial. Meaning there's, yeah, there's a little reductionist biological component. There's a social component of the human in its context, which is all the social determinants of health, its society, its family, where it lives, the food desert it lives in, its zip code, poverty, violence, intergenerational trauma, adverse childhood experiences, all of that go in to the social element, bio, Psychosocial, what's the psychological component? Oh my, all that stuff that builds into the mind system. Well, how do you think placebo works? You think that's a left brain answer to how a placebo works? Some people would like to turn it into that. Well, it's just release of endorphins or it's a upregulation of opioid receptors in, res in response to various neurohormonal signals. I'm sure that's a piece of it, but is that how a placebo works? Somebody who develops a therapeutic relationship with you, who holds your hand, who looks at you in the eye. They've done studies on this with people with bowel uh, problems. And that therapeutic relationship with the clinician, with the caregiver, is the healing action. It's because it is contextual because humans are biological, psychological, and social creatures. What is that synthesis? That's right brain. So where are we in medicine now? We're in left brain. We're absolutely in left brain mode. And we've been there for a long ass time and it is not working. Like it's clear that it's not working. Why do so many patients drift into the sort of pseudoscience and the kind of world of um, people who will give a lot of hope? Like let's say, you know, somebody who's doing, um, uh, you know, herbs or, you know, naturopathy or something like that. Because- those folks understand the psychological and the social aspects, the interrelational right brain aspects and some of the left brain stuff. So what, is, what does our current medical system do? It's all left brain. It's all reductionist. It's all an abstraction. And it's a lot of talking because that's what the left brain does. The right hemisphere is synthetic. It's both and. It's like a really good improv comedy right? It's yes and. It sees everything as partially true and also partially untrue and the truth being very complex. The left brain is an either or. It's, hey, it, it's, it's either this or that. There's no gray. Oh, does that feel like our healthcare system today? Does that feel like our society today where we don't have an alt middle? 
which is a very right brain, left brain synthesis. We have instead tribalism, basically ideological apartheid. And again, I think this model of left and right brain, like as the left brain, the emissary becomes dominant and tries to overthrow the master, we fall into this kind of generalized ruin. Now, what's interesting, this is something interesting, humor, according to McGilchrist, and just, it seems to make sense, is a right brain thing. Why? Because humor is understanding the, like, how do you even define sarcasm? The left brain can't do it. Sarcasm is like a right brain thing because it's like, oh, you just feel into what is crazy about that thing that's happening. And then you laugh your ass off. Like humor is the domain of the right brain. Why is it that our medical system is so fucking humorless right now? Like people like caring right brain and balanced people who go into medicine, they're often musicians and, uh, you know, uh, uh, they, they, they've done the, the arts thinking, oh, I'll, I'll do this to kind of get into med medical school, but really they do it because they're drawn to it. They're creative, caring, passionate, ideological people. And what does medicine do? It beats the humor out of them. Believe me, I know this. Um, just round, go round on any medical ward in the country and try to make a joke and see what happens. Of course, maybe I'm just not funny. I'm definitely not funny, according to my wife. Um, it's humorless, it's reductionist, and it's absolutist, and it's either or, not yes and. That's our left brain system. Now let, let's apply it to COVID. So what's going on during COVID? Absolutism on all sides. Now remember, you know, like both sides of the brain can have a religiosity about them. The right brain is actually more mystical. It's more um, when you meditate in some ways, you're calming that left brain kind of piece or you're subverting it. You're saying, hey, left brain, you wanna drill down onto something? Drill down onto the breath really reduce that until it's just vibrating energy. And then the right brain just you know, expands into infinity. That's what it feels like. And it's just all a whole, it's all context. And it's in, you cannot, there's a Zen saying that, that you'll be like a, a mute person who's had a dream. You know what happened, but you can't speak a word about it. That's what that experience is like of unity consciousness of unbound, just pure awareness. And you can't even talk about it. The left brain is absolutely at a loss, right? But in medicine, in, in society, in COVID, that's what we were talking about. When I do these things live, I go off the rails. I'm not very left-brained anymore. I used to be. Uh, in COVID, what's happened is this shift to left-brain thinking, especially in public health, but in other areas too. So you have the synthesis, you have the thesis position of like, hey, we, we need to do everything we can to stop this respiratory pathogen from hurting anybody at all medically. And the way you do that is you mask a two-year-old, you uh, lock down the economy when you have to, um, you vaccinate everybody with as many doses as it takes to reduce the risk as far low as you can. Um, you stay distant from people, you stop events, you stop connecting with each other. All right, what does that feel like from everything I've been describing? Left brain, that's a very left brain thinking because it's taking this problem, reducing it to a single part, COVID infection and death, and then drilling into that. So what's the antithesis position? The antithesis position, 
And again, the, the derogatory terms for both these positions for thesis position is COVIDian, like the church of COVID uh, uh, amelioration. And the other side is the COVIDiot, the, the, the guy's like, hey, this is a joke. This is not something that we need to do. You're hurting the economy and so on. So what's, what's the antithesis position? Uh, you're missing the big picture on this. You are uh, uh, harming kids by closing schools, by masking children and affecting potentially their language development, et cetera. Your, your vaccines don't stop transmission. So you're impeding people's ability to make choices for themselves, which is in itself a harm and so on. Now, in a way, and, and, and again, I'm as skeptical of, of, of both sides as I can be because it's both and. Like both have very much a lot of truth there. But honestly, if you're looking at the sides and you're going, okay, so who's seeing more holistically? This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. In many ways, actually, neither are, <laughs> because on the on the side of the co, of the uh, antithesis side, what they may miss is that well, if your hospitals are full, and this was early on, if your hospitals are full, if your uh, if the pre- predominance of people that are getting injured by COVID are like lower socioeconomic status, racial minorities that can't stay home, et cetera. That that is that's going to affect the economy. It's going to affect all the other things holistically as well. But on the Covidian side, they're forgetting that health is wealth. And by destroying the wealth of our most vulnerable people, the people that you say, oh, everybody stay home except for you because you're going to deliver my Instacart. Well, those folks, and oh, and by the way, we're closing schools because you can just do Zoom, except for the kid that doesn't have internet or doesn't have a good home uh, environment where the parents are there helping, where they can hire tutors and all of that. Well, what happens now? You're harming that group of people that are going to for ever, forever be behind. And we know that economics correlate to health. So in a way, with good intention of, oh, we're gonna save people from COVID, you've now destroyed their health. And that then folds out over decades. And closing schools was a great example of this, where in San Francisco, one of the most progressive cities on the planet, where I am here now, they had schools closed for the longest in like the world. And they're still trying to figure out what to do. Um, so this kind of reductionist left brain thinking in COVID has really harmed us. Now, what else? Both sides, all the sides in the COVID debate, it's not, it shouldn't be a debate. This is an integration of let's figure out the best thing to do for the most people. And it it will vary from community to community because different people have different values, different moral matrices. They see masks differently. They have different um, moral taste buds, sanctity versus degradation. Oh, I don't want that vaccine in me. Or I don't want that person who hasn't been vaccinated near me. They all see through these moral lenses, but they see differently. So policy will be different because policy is your morality applied to science and the effector organ of actually doing something through law and policy. And so we've, we've, divided into this sort of left brain thinking of absolutism, of good and evil, like I'm right and you're wrong. And it's humorless. That's the worst part of it because they don't see the subtle freaking hilarity of it. Um, 
Let's read some comments. Sunset Way says, one wonders if right brain or left brain is chosen by the body, depending on the quality foundation of the individual standing on at the time and perception of what they see. So my, my intuition is that each is in a kind of a competition in a way. And when that competition works well and the corpus callosum uh, binding the two together inhibits each other in a, a reasonable balance, you get a, a you get a very reasonable outcome. You get a person who sees clearly, sees the nuance, can laugh at things and sees others as themselves because that's a very right brain thing, right? Left brain is like, nope, it's either you or me. Right brain is, is there's no you in me, <laughs> it's just this. And so I do think it's actually, it's somewhat cultural, it's also societal. When we see society as a whole becoming more bureaucratic, more reductionist, more um, like Health 2.0, like somehow we can electronic medical record and Fitbit our way out of our problems. And then you talk to patients and they're miserable. You talk to caregivers and they're burned out. They have the moral injury of having to be a reductionist when they know that what that patient needs is actually this. They need more of this relationship, more of the context. The social determinants of health are nothing but the context that that patient is coming from. And the left hemisphere does not see context at all. It sees parts. Um, Jay Spike says, balancing left and right brain is just how you create engineers. Good engineers, that's right. Because a good engineer can see the big picture and then drill down with that left brain into the parts and then come back to the right brain and put it into context. And in a way, an organization like say an Apple computer that does these you know, remarkable feats of engineering over years and years, and they're very robust and so on. It's teams of people, teams of human being, being humans. So you have some more left brain oriented people, some more right brain oriented people, and on balance, it comes out as a really big hole. NASA is this way. Um, you need all of it to do these remarkable, remarkable accomplishments. That's why this, this you know, kind of mythology that left brain builds stuff and right brain is, does art is just simply not correct. That's reductionism in itself, it's incorrect. Um, yeah, the book is on Audible, Ashley Stewart, Master and His Emissary. I will warn you though, it is very long and difficult to get through. So you may wanna listen to a first few chapters and get the feel of it. And that's really the main gist of it. Um, but some people will go dive deep for sure. He has a new book called The Matter With Things that goes even deeper into it. And it's like a thousand pages. Um, so let's see here. Um, One thing, one thing that's interesting uh, in the book actually is they look a lot at, at schizophrenia because McGilchrist is a psychiatrist and he argues that schizophrenics in a way are very, they're almost like left brain dominant. Like what happens when the left brain is completely in charge in an unbalanced way? And he argues you get a lot of elements of schizophrenia. So thoughts become concrete, like other people are talking to you. Like the voices that are normal thoughts that we hear are now project, they feel like they're projected in because you cannot see the kind of whole context. And so they become very concrete. Abstractions become very concrete. They are not able to see a lot of the nuance and they take things very literally and it becomes a source of tremendous suffering for them. They, they, you know, they feel it, they go that something's not right um, when they have any insight into it. 
And th this can be incredibly problematic. People who've had strokes too, they can look at them when they've had right brain strokes. That is a stroke you don't wanna have because things start to look very odd. Um, and you know they'll, they'll be able to just deny that one of their limbs is theirs at all. Um, they see things as very mechanical and, and it becomes just horrific. And this is an unopposed left brain. Now, if you've ever seen the TED Talk, one of the most famous or most viewed TED Talks of all time, it's um, Jill Bolt Taylor. And she it's called Stroke of Insight. And what happened to Jill, she's a neuroscientist, neuroanatomist, and she was on a, a elliptical machine or something and started to have, she, I think she had a uh, aneurysm in her brain and it started to bleed. And what it did was it started to affect her left hemisphere. And so things started to get weird and she describes it in a very beautiful way. You should watch the TED talk if you haven't, it's called Stroke of Insight. And she was unable to, to speak and there were motor function abnormalities because this was her left side. And she describes when she was recovering, now she's a kind of right dominant kind of brain. And it was hard because all the things the left brain does, she, she didn't have a lot of access to that, which makes it really hard to be a, a functioning human. So I'm not, I'm not saying, oh, you should just be right brained, but this is what she described, right? She said it was like suddenly even time stopped because time is kind of a thought construct. It's an abstraction. And she's sitting there in the room and she's so present that she's feeling all the energy of the sense fields coming in as raw energy, the beam of sun on the hospital mattress. And she's just infinity experiencing itself. And she's crying as she's talking about this and this sense of expansiveness and unity And this is one of the most remarkable aspects of the right brain is it's felt to be the direct mediator between what is the sense world and our minds. And so it's taking in all this raw information and then the left brain is kind of processing it and breaking it into parts and then sending it back to the right brain to be the mediator with the quote unquote world of which it's not separate. And when she describes it, she talks of it, it's almost like being just plugged into reality itself and feeling the raw sense energy. And I will tell you this, this is the mystical experience. This is the spiritual experience. This is the transcendent experience of this moment that is always and already here. And our right mind is tapped right into that. So, when we as a society shift to this reductionist, divisive, always right, righteously angered left brain, we are out of the present moment. We are up in abstraction and thought and language, and we're losing what it means to be human. So what does this all mean? Well, you know, you look at what's going on in Ukraine, you look at what's going on with our divided country and all of this, we need to rebuild that corpus callosum, those fibers that connect left and right, and put the emissary back in its place as the tool of the master.
the right hemisphere. And when you have that balance, I call that the alt-middle. You could also call it integral view. A yes and, everything's true but partial, seeing the context, having a damn sense of humor, right? Because that's part of it. And then noticing that you are both a part and a part of the whole and the whole itself. And if this sounds weird and like cliche, that's because you can't even talk about it. You can only be it. And that's the experience of the right hemisphere and balance with the left. So that's where I think we have to go to survive as a species. Because as McGilchrist warns us, otherwise we're left brain zombies walking towards the abyss and we don't even know it because we can't see beyond our reductionism. Got to put my glasses on to read your comments. <laughs> I'm an old man. Ah! Spending two seconds on Twitter and it's pure left brain. Ashley Stewart, nailed it. Social media exploits our left brain's desire to be right, to have an answer that's concrete, to not see nuance, to have an enemy that's an other versus self and tribe. And Twitter is a perfect example of it. I made the mistake of scrolling through my Twitter feed the other day, um, looking at how people are behaving. And I could feel emotionally, because you know I pay attention now a lot to my internal state, and I can feel emotionally what's happening to me just looking through the feed. And it's not good. It's either outrage, I can feel it rising, or sometimes jealousy, like envy. Like I'll see somebody who will say something in a way that I'm like, oh, he agrees with me, but he said it so well. And how, how many followers does he have? Oh, what? That person's more successful. It's madness. And it's all unconscious, but I, I can watch it happening. I'm like, ooh, that's envy. That's righteous indignation. And then of course, you, you, when you notice you're doing that, then you feel shame arising. <laughs> ah, that's social media, Twitter in particular. Right? If we were perfectly balanced, right brain, left brain, we could do Twitter safely. We could pull it off. And actually Twitter would be different because the AI algorithm really rewards left brain thinking. Um, and we would actually change the algorithm. Mirani Ritchie, the right brain is dominant as we help our babies develop and feeding helps to balance development. Then motion like crawling, more on how, the, more on how infant care and development has lifelong impact. So Mirani was on our show talking about um, feeding your baby. And she says, one of the things that you do is you switch sides. Why? And, and actually McGilchrist talks about this in his book. It is culturally set up that babies are, are actually often fed on a side where they get right brain stimulation. Um, and they're seeing faces and seeing contextual stuff and switching them back and forth actually develops both hemispheric connections potentially in theory a little bit more. And so it just becomes this fascinating thing of how children uh, and their brains develop because it is, it's wiring as you use it, uh, this mind system of which the brain is an icon. A brain is like, oh, this is what that looks like to consciousness. Um, Stephanie says, and to admit when you're wrong. Yeah, left brain will never admit it's wrong. Any, any public figures feel like that? Pretty much all of them, right? <laughs> it's like a, a left brain kind of thing. Um, 
Sarah says, uh, yeah, social media exploits left brain impulse towards otherizing. Exactly. Nailed it. That's exactly right. Um, Rosie T says, I don't need Twitter to make me feel pissed off. Europe, Europe, solid human. <laughs> That's exactly right. We can do it without Twitter. I'm trying to think if there's anything else I wanted to tell you guys about this. I'm looking over here at uh, some clips from the book. He says, in the right brain, we experience the live, complex, embodied world of the individual, always unique beings forever in flux, a net of interdependencies, forming and reforming wholes, a world with which we are deeply connected. That's our right brain. In the other, the left brain, we experience our experience in a special way, a represented version of it, containing now static, separable, bounded, but essentially fragmented entities grouped into classes on which predictions can be based. This kind of attention isolates, fixes, and makes each thing explicit by bringing it under the spotlight of attention. In doing so, it renders things inert, mechanical, and lifeless. But it also enables us for the first time to know and consequently to learn and to make things, and this gives us power. That's the beautiful balance of left and right hemisphere where one isn't absolutely dominant. So to wrap this up, what is health 3.0? It is left brain, right brain, back to, it's, it's right brain going to left brain, using the tools to come back to right brain and put them in context of the biopsychosocial entity that is a human. It's body, mind, and spirit, integrated. It's a system that is more like an organism that is anti-fragile, that responds to challenges by getting stronger, that is adaptable, that is a yes and, both and kind of philosophy, and that uses the left brain as a powerful tool to empower the right brain. So we're technology empowered, but never technology enslaved. As my friend Robbie, Dr. Robbie Pearl says, Right now, we're in a middleman culture in healthcare where everyone wants to be the middleman to create this little Fitbit or this little measurement widget or this little telehealth or this little whatever, forgetting the big picture that we need to lead the entire system needs to holistically wake up and change to be a rehumanized relational contextual 3.0, which means you got to pay for it differently. You got to pay for actual health outcomes that matter. You have to measure it differently. You have to train medical students and nursing students and pharmacy students, not in the 2.0 reductionist model, but in the 3.0 relational connected interdependent model, the balanced model, bringing it back to balance. And it's coming whether we like it or not. The thing is we might destroy ourselves before it actually happens, which is a full possibility. And that's why I think meditation, any kind of spirituality you can hook on, even if you're an atheist, the meditative kind of approach can work for you. That is crucial to that balance. Without it, we are very much trapped in our thoughts and in our left brain and in our identity as a separate self. Verbal Kin says, my mom had a massive stroke 10 years ago that deleted her left brain. Speaking is very difficult, but problem solving is now impossible. But, but what you can't, you can't really imagine what her internal state is right is like because she can't express it without that left brain verbalization. And problem solving does involve left brain. But her internal experience, and I often will say this to people who have patients, family members with dementia, you know, when their mind quiets like that, 
the internal experience may well be like what Jill Bolt Taylor is having, this expansive connectedness and presence, this eternal kind of sense of presence, which is always here. We just obscure it with our mind chatter. Chris says, define spirit. Ooh. So this is a word that people make up to describe the indescribable. And if you strip away the religious context from it, which again, it's very difficult to do because that word is so loaded. But the way I try to conceptualize something that's inconceivable, which is spirit is, spirit is what you actually are at, at root. It's the ground of your being. It's the awake potential from which all forms and all thought and all energy and everything that we experience as an object arises. It's our fundamental true nature. It's the living truth of this moment is spirit. And you can call that emptiness. You can call that God. You can call that consciousness, although that's not quite right. All these are just words. And again, words are the, are the, are the left brain's way of trying to reduce the irreducible into something that it can grasp. Which by the way, notice something. Most people are right-handed. The left brain controls the right hand. The right hand is the grasping agent. It's the thing that takes the parts from the whole and tries to, tries to comprehend. Prehend means to grasp. Prehensile, right? And that's the left that does that. That's its specialty. So trying to grasp this concept of spirit, it's not even a concept, but you can be it because you are it. And sometimes meditation, prayer, a mystical experience like walking in the woods, certain psychedelics, you can tap right into that. And then the question of what is spirit becomes unanswerable, but entirely known by you, which is a paradox. And paradox only exists in the mind and in language. It doesn't actually exist in reality. It's just reality. It feels paradoxical to the mind. So that, <laughs> that's my best way <laughs> of answering that. Um, all right, so last comment, Jody Mitchell. We need to move forward. How do we as a species move forward in trying to spread this kind of thinking? People are so self-righteous and safe in their own thinking. Okay, did you watch the show? If you did, you've already seen how we might move forward because it just is understanding. Suddenly the right brain and the left brain wake up and they go, oh, wait, what? What did you say? This is something that I've intuitively felt was right. And now you've made it explicit so the left brain can understand it. And you've pointed to the implicit metaphorical nature of it so the right brain can comprehend it in a holistic way. And now I'm informed by that. So the next time I get into a dumb Twitter battle, I'll, I might suddenly wake up and be like, oh, remember that video I saw where left brain, right brain, I'm feeling very left brain right now. Maybe I'll just sit for a second and be a little more response able, a little wiser. And what if all of society starts to shift and there's a cultural tipping point where 10% of uh, Americans or the world suddenly are more integral alt-middle alt thinkers and it becomes culturally okay to do that and there are leaders that behave that way and suddenly it becomes an avalanche like the civil rights movement made an avalanche of multicultural pluralism in the 60s and 70s and 80s and now that's the dominant paradigm. Well, why can't alt-middle be? It's the next emergent integral thinking, why can't it be the paradigm? Well, because people don't even know it's possible. So let's make 
the unknown a little more conscious by talking about it. That's why I do what I do. It's my small way of trying to contribute to that. You can do it too, because now it's going to inform everything you do. Even when you forget, you'll remember. That's called mindfulness, remembering to remember. That's all. Remembering the present moment. It's always here. We just forget. That's all. It's easy to forget. Guys, I love you so much. You guys are the best. Um, love to spend these Sunday lives with you. Um, I Honestly, I, I'm always torn about videos these days because I just, if I don't feel passionate about something, I can't do a video. So I haven't been making a lot of videos because COVID is, you know, and what I'm passionate about is stuff like this. So you'll see these kind of things, certain things in healthcare that I get really riled up about. You'll see me make videos about that. Um, if you wanna uh, be a part of it, just subscribe on YouTube or Facebook or Instagram or wherever you're watching. And if you wanna support what we do, cause you know, we don't do a lot of sponsored stuff guys, hardly ever. Um, be, join our supporter tribe, just zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, YouTube, Facebook, locals, all the places. Um, five bucks a month, you can support our show and uh, we'll continue to try to raise, just, just let's wake up the zombies together because otherwise we're walking towards the abyss. Sometimes a problem well-defined is half solved, right? I say that because I don't have all the answers. If I told you I had all the answers, what side of the brain would I be talking from? All right, guys, I love you. And we are out. Peace. Put these glasses back on so I can see what I'm doing. There it is. End stream. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> and so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It, it just really helps the algorithm to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I wanna hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is, financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community, really. And we support and love each other and share, again, through our own experience, how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.